Hey everybody, it's Luke McElroy back again for another Physiology Secrets. I'm on a bit of a roll today and I wanted to quickly get on and talk about a concept which is called minimum effective dose. And before I go into what it is, I want to talk about a little bit of background as to why I'm recording this podcast um, and, and yeah, the reason why I'm doing it. So I still get quite a lot of comments, haters, I guess you'd call it if you want to use social media terms, about the training methods that I use. Um, People who don't follow this content much, from an outside perspective, they see that they that they feel that I only prescribe high intensity interval training and I neglect doing zone two endurance work. And it couldn't be further from the truth. All right, and I want to clear that up in this podcast and explain a bit about my philosophy um, from a sports scientist and a coaching perspective and why it's so success successful with the athletes that come through, okay? So I am not against doing zone two endurance work. What I am against doing is training somebody for an area in their physiology which is already a massive, massive strength of theirs and they're not gonna see any extra benefit. Let me give you an example. I had an athlete come to me who was doing 23 hours a week for the past two to three years with a previous coach and he had an absolutely elite aerobic capacity. His ability to use oxygen at sub-maximal workloads was, at the time, the best I'd seen, at the time. Top age group of pushing elite status he was. He came to me and he did some testing and it showed that he had an elite aerobic capacity which we, which we developed through doing zone two work. He had a poor aerobic power and a poor um, ability to tolerate lactic acid. So his strength clearly was his long, slow zone two stuff. His weakness was clearly his VO2 max intervals and time at threshold. So we actually tried to work with the coach um, and, and help them through prescribing the training that, was, that, that this person would benefit most from and I don't know if it's the way I rub up on people or whatever, but you know, didn't want a bar of it, um, ignored the advice, and sure enough, a couple of months later, jumped on board as one of my coaching clients, okay? I've never ever, in my, I can honestly say I've never ever pursued an athlete who already has a coach. I have never tried to steal an athlete, which people, for some reason, coaches think I'm gonna do. I've never ever even mentioned coaching to somebody who already has a coach. Where people go wrong, from a coaching perspective, is that they, they see the stuff we do at METS as competition or as, or as undermining or whatever it is. We just wanna help the coach keep the athlete improving so the athlete's happy, therefore they're gonna stay on your services and everybody's gonna benefit. The athlete gets better, um, you, the coach um, remains um, financial because they've got another paying member um, and we get referral tests every three months or so to continue the cycle, so everybody wins. But when ego comes into it, or or traditional mindset, or um, lack of education, whatever the reason is, and they, they ignore the, the ignore the the advice, which is basically punching them in the face, is the athlete gets frustrated. They're not seeing improvement, and th- and that's how. If I were to get somebody who was already on another coaching plan, that's how they come across. So what we did was we went from 23 hours of predominantly zone two stuff, which he was on for two years to eight hours of predominantly intensity stuff, VO2 max stuff and, 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 and threshold work. We cut the volume by two thirds because 
that was already a massive, massive strength of this athlete. Why would we continue to do volume if you're not seeing any benefit? If you can already complete the distance using oxygen, what extra benefit are we doing by continuing to do long, easy stuff? So what we found was that this person's threshold went from 270 watts to 300 watts in two months. That's a massive, massive improvement. When they're chasing one or 2% gains doing long stuff, we've actually cut their volume by two thirds. They're doing two thirds less training a little bit extra of intensity, a high intensity stuff, because that's what the data said they should do, and that's physiologically the stimulus they needed to adapt. Like it's not, it's not, um, it's no miracle work. It's just, hey, what's your strengths? Cool, let's maybe not do them. What are your weaknesses? All right, let's do VO2 max and threshold, and that's how it works. They're the stories you often see when I, you know, sometimes I'll post stories about people improving. Like I had one guy who improved his VO2 max by 16% in four months from 68 to 80, which is off the charts. But again, that was a similar situation where he had an elite aerobic capacity, an elite base, but he didn't have any topping because all he ever did was long, slow stuff. So, not everybody's going to see a 16% improvement in three to four months. It's, it's not the way it works. It's nice when it happens, but that's only if they already have an elite base. Let's go on the other side of the spectrum. Some people come and they have a, they have a terrible aerobic base. Their fraction of expired is ridiculous. They're probably, and as a result, they generally have good aerobic power and good threshold because if they're a decent performer, if you've got poor aerobic capacity, you're going to have to be good at the other two areas to compensate, right? Uh, and I'm actually in that boat myself. I've got a really good aerobic power and, and um, ability to tolerate lactic acid, but my capacity is not there because I don't do I don't I don't devote the time um, to doing the, the really long stuff. So anything over a half iron distance, and I'm in, I'm in trouble because um, I'm always in lactic acid, but I can tolerate it. So another example, you know, there's plenty of athletes who are really good at the top end stuff and the intervals, but they're very poor at aerobic base. And the reason that is is because the the zone two stuff that they done in the past has been either too easy or too hard. They don't know what their true heart rate zone should be. They're using a generic, a generic equations, 220 minus your age and a percentage of that to estimate what they should be holding. Okay, So I've had an athlete who has been holding 40 beats too low for their endurance zone, all right? So, you know, you're 220 miles your age. This person maxed out at 217 beats, all right? Like, this is a this is an outlier, but lots of people listening, I'm sure lots of people listening to this have a higher heart rate than what they're supposed to based on these equations, all right? So, they maxed out at 217. In theory, they should have only maxed out about 179. Um, and their threshold heart rate was 196. And, and, you know, in theory, based on percentages, it should be about 155, 160, right? <clears throat> So they were told to do their aerobic-based training at a heart rate, I think it was about 135, right? In essence, they actually could have held a heart rate of 175, and that would have been a better zone two mitochondrial stimulus than going easier. So they were doing all this training at a lower intensity than what they should have been doing, and they were getting suboptimal adaptation, uh, and they had to do more and more and more and more training to get the same stimulus. So. For that person, we do a whole heap of zone two training, which makes sense, of course it does, because that's their weakness. If that was their strength, I wouldn't do as much, but if that's their weakness, they have to do it. Now, I'm not against volume, and I'm not against zone two training. I am against unnecessary volume for the sake of training and not doing it to the individual's need. So what I mean by that is, you, if you train somebody 20, 25, 30 hours a week plus, there's only one of two things that can happen. They're either gonna get fitter, <coughs> or they're gonna get sick, injured, and burnt out. There's no in-between, right? <coughs> Why would we go and give somebody 20 to 25 hours of training when we can get the exact same stimulus and exact same benefit from doing 
six, seven, 10 hours by hitting the exact heart rate zone that we should be doing and maximizing the stimulus and the adaptation. This is what I mean by minimum effective dose. I'm not against volume, but I am against rubbish training, um, which is not building towards a certain goal or, or, or stimulating a we- an area of weakness in your physiology. So, um, <coughs> sorry, that's sort of what I wanted, wanted, wanted to cover. Um, so the philosophy that we use, it isn't high intensity, low intensity, whatever. It's just about minimum effective dose, getting the maximum possible response from the minimum amount of training, never doing a second of training which doesn't build towards a certain goal or adaptation or response um, so that you can spend more time performing rather than fatiguing. Why do we want to fatigue you an unnecessary 15 hours a week when we could just get you recovering, performing better, or maybe doing some supplementary strength stuff in the gym so you don't get injured, you can run more econ- economically, move better, and have fewer overuse injuries. It just, I don't know, it just makes sense in my mind. So um, that's the rant I wanted to go on. In terms of a practical standpoint, um, I, I guess all this really tells us is that um, getting your training zones is a good thing to do because you can get uh, potentially 15 hours of benefit in five hours of proper training compared to using generic heart rate, pace and power zones. Any questions, let me know. I'll speak to you again soon, guys. Thank you.